but you know what before those two forget a bunch of rich guy places we we, we still have some great public courses that need work so i'd love to see sharp park up in northern california it can't be put back perfectly but it, it a lot of it could be put back and to have an alistair mckenzie public course shine again that's way more important for the game than pine valley's perfect leave it alone <laughs> <laughs> I'm Roberto, professional golfer and aspiring business guy. And I'm Dan, business guy and wannabe golfer. We met in college in a boring engineering class, made a connection through golf, and have been kicking around ideas on the business of golf ever since. On the Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest folks in the golf business and get the inside stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. Welcome to this week's Course Record Show. We are joined by Jeff Shackelford. Uh, instead of reading an intro, let's go here. Jeff, you've had quite a career in golf. You've authored 11 books, designed golf courses, been a frequent media correspondent, and hosted two podcasts. How in the world do you describe yourself and your career to someone who has not met you? <laughs> uh, adjusting to the constantly changing uh, media landscape would be the uh, corporate answer. Um you know, I never envisioned, uh, I, I, I played college golf and, and I, I knew I wasn't going to play as a pro and I actually gave some lessons and, uh, I knew I wanted to do things in golf. I never quite imagined I would do all the things I'm doing or that I would do television or do podcasting, uh, because, uh, but you just kind of have to adapt to how, how things are changing. And, and, uh, I try not to get too bummed about it but at times i've been a, a little uh depressed when i feel like i'm getting good at something and then it it things change like i was really enjoying writing for golf world and starting to learn how to write a good uh profile or do a story and then of course that that went uh, uh belly up and so that's been something i guess i've been lucky in a way because in our world it's it's good to be able to 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 adapt but it does get frustrating at times when you feel like you're, you're, you're kind of getting good at something and then it, it, it kind of goes away. And, uh, um, but I also look at some of my, my peers and know that they, they need to be more uh, flexible. <laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna keep changing the, uh, everything in, uh, in our world, at least in terms of the, the media side of things, but even in architecture and other realms. So your newest book that's coming out soon is called golf architecture for normal people. You break down golf course architecture in a very approachable way for everyday players like myself, and you throw in a nice dose of your patented dry humor, which I really appreciated. So what compelled you to undertake this project? You know, I've done books on golf architecture since I was, well, essentially about 24. I, I self-published a book on George Thomas, uh, the architect of this year's U.S. Open course. And I'm, I've just always had a belief that it's a, it's a really fun thing to know more about the course and it's always just perplexed me that golfers will go deep on uh, uh their equipment they'll go deep into cars or wine or cigars they'll be all interested in all these things as connoisseurs and they'll travel all over the world to see courses but when you really break it down and ask them a few questions, they don't they don't know a thing. And I and I don't I don't want to that sound like an indictment, but it always has sort of blown my mind. Like, well, when you know a little bit more about either why the course was created or you can back up your views on why something doesn't work, it's fun. It's just it's just makes the game more enjoyable to be around and and to have those uh, to have a little bit of knowledge. Um, and so, I mean, you guys, thankfully, you're very kind. You read the book, but I, I get right out at the beginning and say, look, I love that there are snobs because I think that elevates any pursuit. Uh, and I don't want that to go away. We want to have standards, but they can really be a turnoff to people. And I, this book was designed to say, uh, look, I, I don't want to make you into me or, or uh, I mean, Brad Klein, who's just got a brilliant mind and, but he's, you know, very intellectual guy. And some of us can really turn people off. I get it. Uh, but we're not going to change, but I do want you to know these few things to look for that I think will make it more fun. And there's, and actually, since the last time I tried this book, uh, I tried it with grounds for golf and it, you know, it's okay. It's too long uh, probably, but 
Uh, some things have really changed with technology so that as a golfer, I actually had things to share that can help you actually shave a few strokes off your score and use Google Earth and technology and different things uh, to just get a little bit better, too. So uh, that wasn't my idea. That was the publisher's idea, but I was really glad he suggested it. Um, so anyway, that was that was the point of the book. And we'll see. I, you know, I go into some different areas. I try to equate. Uh, what goes on in golf architecture with other pursuits and some people might might you know find that a little weird or my dated references to uh, you know various people in music and and movies uh, I mean I was just with some people watching the Oscars and made a godfather remark and they 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 neither one of them watched it so uh, <laughs> I thought godfather uh, quotes and comments were were universal but now no still we've got a generation that hasn't watched it now so you're hanging out with the wrong people if they're not picking up on Godfather, i guess that's right? what i yeah i did wonder that <laughs> so so if you've got the connoisseurs way over here and you've got the lay people over here when it comes to architecture like what's the single biggest thing that helps close that gap like what's one thing you want people to really take away to just be a bit more informed by architecture and enjoy themselves that bit much more well, I think it just starts from from realizing that um, having a uh, this sort of big picture view that you know you play golf and you love seeing different courses for a reason. You, you know, tennis people you, you don't travel the world to see different courts. Uh, I mean, you might play in a different setting now and then. It's cool. They grow roses on the fences, or they have grass or clay. But other than that, not a big deal. And so it always kind of blows my mind that there are golfers who. They kind of know this, but they don't really realize, wow, you know, I, 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 they, they notice more than they realize, but they don't know quite how to uh, compute what they see. Um, and so I think one of the things we've, we've always had is the golfers have always just judged a course by the, by the difficulty or uh, the yardages, the, the slope, the rating, what tournaments they've hosted, and to just try to get past the numbers a little bit and get a little into what 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 made you feel uh good or bad about a place and what excited you and what shots matter and ultimately when you step back from a course and around um what kind of left that lasting impression and makes you want to come back again and and play it again um and so i try to lay out a few ways to 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 ask those questions that that speak to the more wonky stuff that a lot of us really get into um but without just getting carried away is the idea just keep it keep it a little more simplified and i'm sure the the uh a lot of the people in the architecture world will kind of kind of roll their eyes at some of it but I, I i just think it's necessary and uh because we're at a great time in the game more more people than ever are fascinated by golf architecture so that's exciting um to me because it's one of the best things about loving the game and being associated with golf. Yeah, I think that's a difference with movies. The population is going away from being connoisseurs of movies and mm. taking more short bite-sized media, but golf architecture interest is is on the increase. So two things from your book. One, I'm I'm guilty of both, and one I was validated, and one you called me out on in the book. I've frequently said like that golf course is right in front of you. Love that course, which you equated to being just uninteresting. <laughs> pro. That's it's, un it's uninteresting. If in, and I was like, well, he probably has a good point. And then another one though, I've said forever is like, I could play that golf course every day. Love that course could play it for the rest of my life, which you had a strong endorsement for. So, you know, I felt good about that, but those are two kind of two little points I pulled from the book that I enjoyed. Yeah. Tour pros. And I get it. Look, it's your, it's, it's a job. And you don't, nobody, when you have to solve a puzzle, you don't want to be deceived. And so I understand why a professional golfer doesn't like deception. And, and I didn't go too deep into the book on it because there's some really layered old arguments about that idea and deception and blindness. And, um, and, and it really kind of comes down to, uh, if you feel like the course, uh, if the, there are there are mysteries to it, and you feel like they were created by Mother Nature, and the and the and the golf just kind of clings to the land, eh, you kind of accept it. But if you feel like there's somebody there with a blueprint and a pen, and they were screwing with you, or trying to, you reject it. And that's not just tour pros; that's everybody. And that's kind of what the old architects really were always trying to solve was. 
all right, we played these things in Scotland. They've got all this uh, uh, kind of quirk, but we know it was just there. They just laid it out and that's what was there. How do we translate that to a man-made design uh, and make people like it? And some architects do that better than others. We try to take the business angle on Course Record Show. What do you make of the business currently of golf course design and development? I am blown away by the number of courses being opened in the Southeast. So call it within three hours of where I am in Atlanta. There's three or four in Aiken. There's a couple in South Georgia. If you add in, you know, the Congaree, a Hoopie. I mean, we're talking about a dozen golf courses in the last two, three, four, five years. Do we need these courses? What's driving this boom? What do you make of the state of the industry right now? Well, it is, uh, I, I would say where you are is unusual. There isn't that much new construction in other parts of the country. Um, um, or Except really for Nebraska. And Nebraska. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I've, I've been involved in a project there with, with Gil at the Prairie club we, years ago, we did a, 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 what we call the horse course. Um, and, and frankly, that to me is the most exciting thing going on in golf architecture, all these places wanting to have a par three or a, an alt, uh, an alternate uh, fun, maybe more beginner or more post round laughs type type thing i mean the names are starting to get a little silly and we probably are to blame for that since we named the horse course but that was named because of we were trying to create a course that was inspired by the basketball game of horse where you a little different mindset that whoever had the honor kind of called the shot yeah um but yeah now we have all these names the gaslight and the the, the it's always a the something it's but whatever the main thing is when you get on them they're a blast. And so Pinehurst adding one Pebble beach and they're all home runs and they're doing exactly what you thought they they're It's a place for beginners. It's a place for good players. Um, you know, after the round and have more, a more quick casual thing. So that's, that's just thrilling because for years uh, we had to hear all about grow the game, grow the game. And, and then nobody wanted to build the thing that is the great way to start the game, which for a lot of kids, the scale of a par three is just more approachable. And then as you get older, uh, the older you get, the more you like something that's a little of a quaint scale. So that part of the of, of everything is great. You know, obviously, these people have a business model that these more remote uh, courses can sustain. And, and there isn't really any sign that's slowing down that people enjoy this um, – sort of remote experience and, and, uh, and certainly a second or 14th club membership uh, at the moment that seems to be working. Uh, so I think that's sensational. And then obviously a lot of places are, are reevaluating what they have. And that's where most of the architects are, are getting their work and doing their work. And, you know, I would say it's, it's uh, very positive in terms of the, you feel like a lot of the renovation, even though some of these price tags are high, um, I guess the difference since I started playing golf that I see is there is a, a better understanding of why are we renovating? Are, are we doing this to get in Golf Digest or to um, to get new members? And yeah, sometimes it, it, it is to raise the profile, but a lot of the times it's for long-term sustainability now. It's like, we're going to need a new irrigation system. Let's freshen everything up um and i think the most exciting part to me since i've started being in the game is that more places are asking the architects we want the course to be more fun and we want more people to be able to enjoy it not we're trying to make it harder and get a tournament i mean just quickly the course i did with gill rustic canyon here in southern california it's now 20 years old when it opened there were a couple of very very expensive, big name architect places, and both of them are essentially defunct uh, now. But when we did Rustic, that people would say to me, "Oh, well, it's 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 a fun course," and it was just such a condescending, you know. And I was embarrassed for them more because like it's supposed to be fun, golf's supposed to be fun. And now, of course, you hear people, "Oh, it's so much fun," you know. So that change in these last twenty years is so exciting because. That's what's going to make golf sustainable if a place is fun. And so architects are getting that mission instead of, you know, trying to get our course rating up. Yeah, I think you nailed it on the remote places. It might be, you know, the world is getting more specialized and always. And it's very, this country is very kind of urban versus rural. And you see that, I think, in the golf where 
in town clubs and country clubs and whatnot are going to where you said, right? Like being more inclusive, being more fun. And then the remote, but hey, when I want to get away, I want to get away. And it's the cottage, you know, you've got the cottage, you go play golf and all you're doing is playing golf and hanging out. And, and that seems to be really working, right? The stream songs, the bandons, the sand valleys. Um, it's not like, hey, come bring your kids and they go to the, it's like, no, you know, go to the pool and do all that at home. And then when you come yeah. here, it's all about golf. And I, that seems to be really, really working from a business model standpoint. It's also where there's sandy soil. <laughs> and, yeah. and from a golf course construction point of view, I mean, what that does again for the, the, the long-term uh, cost, the short-term costs, the long-term cost, you know, you got to go a ways away to, to find the sand and the cool land. And it speaks to people's change in taste. They want something that, is a little more nature-based and um, firmer, firmer, faster golf. That's that that's more fun to play, and uh, you, you're not going to get that in, in an urban environment. So again, that speaks to just kind of the change in tastes, and um, I think that's a, a. I mean, Scotland has proven that that's a that's a model that will last because uh, on multiple levels, from from maintenance to uh, actual cost at the beginning and then to the actual golf that you play. So you mentioned cost. And I think one of the things that's almost, I worry about offsetting the boom that COVID's given golf the last few years is the, just a huge rise in interest rates and the capital costs that naturally come with any golf course project, whether it's new or renovation, restoration, et cetera. What, what's your read of that in the, in the current moment? Like, is that creating some anxiety in the industry about doing these projects or what's the, What's the, some with you with the, with the year on the ground, what do you hear about this stuff? Yeah. I mean, there has to be, when you look at just the, the, the rise in the cost of the irrigation system, uh, just any number of things, it, it is not cheap to build a course, even when you have great soil and yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're still hung up on some things like a USGA green and, you know, an architect needs, you know, Corin Crenshaw, the, the the one architects who just they just won't build a USGA green. They they dump a big a thing of sand and they they get the right sand and they test it and they they have old school greens. They build something more artistically beautiful because of that. Uh, and then also it's it's a lot cheaper. And so we have all these sort of built-in things that architects have to kind of go to to cover their rear end because if they don't do it you know, with this certain irrigation system, uh, this contractor, the USGA greens, this kind of sand, um, they can get in trouble if it goes wrong. And so it's a safe way out. And the, uh, the, the, the lenders like all that, but it has led to where even on good soil, you're looking at, you know, $10 million at the very minimum uh, to build the course now. And that's, uh, I would say minimum, but it's it's pretty close in that once you get into a bunch of different factors, and that's still a little bit scary. Then again, you know, if it's in the right place and the right business model, that's really not that much money, especially when you know what what people spend on on clubhouse furniture still. And um, and but I think that's also something we've seen is a little. We're not quite there. More people realizing, wait, you you're putting all that money into that place where you spend maybe an hour. Uh, versus the one where you're out there for four to five hours, um, and, and including the range. And uh, and then that's another element is people have, have put more into practice because I think just more people enjoy uh, the practice facility. I, I was at a club recently and they really wanted to move the range from the clubhouse. And, and I just said, look, I, you know, they, they felt well, maybe, maybe simulators are going to kind of overtake the range. No. I think it's here. And, 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 you know, if I had, I enjoy practice. There are a lot of people who just enjoy that hour of coming out, hitting balls, hitting some chips and putts, seeing a few people, and then they go on to something else in their day. They don't even play and they enjoy that. Well, that's just a, I think that's a permanent part of the game and you just have to factor that into your design of the course and your, your, your spending on it, because I, I don't see that changing and then what's wrong with it? i mean that's great you know and, and that's one other thing guys that i see in the business of golf that's changed is they're fine people are finally getting over this idea that a golfer is a it's a it's a white male who's 50 who's got money and he wants to play 18 holes on saturday 
and we have to build a facility for that. Like, you know, there's just a lot of ways to be a golfer. Some people just never, they just practice. Some people only play par three courses. Some people only go to top golf and who cares? You're, you're part of our family. You're, you're, you're a golfer. Yeah. And the creativity, even from avid golfers is still has a long way to go though on, on like how you play, like the T markers thing. It's crazy to me. Like I play with people and they want to play one up for me, or they want to play the same T or they want to play. And it's just like, go up there, make this hole shorter today. Go back. <laughs> you can play where I know a hoopy has no T markers and you play wherever, which is cool. I think more clubs should do that. They're so hung up on where they should tee off from. It makes no sense to me. Well, and we, I mean, how many places now have, uh, I mean, the idea that red, uh, you know, LA country club where we consulted, uh, there, there, there are no red tees anymore because there, there was people, the older guys, and this was not specific to them. This is, this is universal. We're hung up on, well, that's the yardage. I really know I should play. I'm not playing the red tees like, Oh my Lord. So places of some places have made the back tees, the red tees. Now. Uh, and yeah. And, it's one of those things where architecture, you know, Alice Dye really brought that into the, into the world, mostly for the women's game. Um, but once people get over certain things, they realize, gosh, isn't it fun to play to certain spots on the course and have the right approach in the vicinity of what the architect had in mind. The game is so much more fun, but it's a hang up. So one of the things that we did at LA yep. North Gill did at Southern Hills, and it's, it's a hard thing for people to get over. But from a maintenance standpoint, if, if this idea of the kind of the one long moan area uh, instead of boxes of tees, the amount of time and effort, an actual box that's, and especially if they're hand walk uh, moan, which is usually the case, that is wasted on all those different tees. When you can have this fairway mower just go right down and do the tee, you get the flexibility of the tees, you get a cleaner look, and the maintenance time that is saved and the cost, the manpower hours is unbelievable. So it's, that's a, that's an exciting trend to keep an eye on. Um, but I don't oh, that's think people cool. realize how much, how much time is wasted on that. I wouldn't have thought of that, but it does make sense. So Jeff, switching over into the publishing side of your career, like we said earlier, we you published 11 books now over about 20 years or so. What's been the biggest change in the publishing business? Uh, I would, I would say that, you know, it, for a while it got a little bit uh to where everybody thought you had to have a kindle friendly book um and and i think that really kind of set things back for a little while um i got into a mindset of i mean you don't make any money first of all doing a book unless you're john grisham and and james patterson and uh Colleen Hoover, who I've never read any of her books, but she's got about five every time I look at the bestseller list. And uh, so she's she's an empire. It's great. But uh, the, everybody else, it's more of a passion project. And uh, what's exciting is you feel like we're kind of coming back to people realizing print is great. And I, I think that uh, we all learn that when you're on an electronic device, uh, it, it, there's just something like, well, wait, why am I do? Why am I looking at this book when there's I can read about what's going on in the world now or something? And it and it was a distraction. So print is coming back, um, and that to me is just fantastic. Um, but I've I've just always done the books because I love the topic, and I know they're not going to be massive uh, uh, sellers. And so I stopped doing books for a long time just because I got into doing other things, and I would make more money doing that. Um, and the current book I'm doing is just because it, it was, I just, it was the time and I felt like there's an interest in, and I had a little different approach. Um, but all in all, it's a, it's a dreadful business, uh, the book business. I'm very lucky. I'm doing this with a, a kind of a one man band guy who has a, has a day job and uh, loves doing a book a year or so. And he's very much an Amazon focused publisher in that, you know, it's just, bookstores are just aren't many anymore although they're trying to come back and there's some exciting stuff going on with barnes and noble even yeah um, more stores there's just still something yeah they're they're going to be grabbing i think a lot of the amazon stores which i loved by the way the amazon stores i was just what a silly little thing I mean, it's just that they close those you know i thought that every time i went there were people there they were either doing their returns or they were buying stuff the staffs were great and it it 
you there's just something about the experience of of a bookstore and browsing books uh the people who work there that is yeah it's just been hard to watch that end and so it's exciting to see um some people trying to make a go of it again and then also seeing that barnes and noble suddenly is is uh, is is finding some ways to to kind of reinvent uh the bookstore and freshen it up a little and so that's going to be a fun thing to watch but he's very uh, amazon focused and once you kind of get over uh whatever feelings you have about that way of buying a book um you know i think i'm i'm excited to see how this book does uh using that that methodology but the bigger the more exciting thing is that i i sense and i don't know how you guys feel but i just sense more people uh are realizing there 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 is something there's a value in getting away from an electronic device the beauty of the printed page and and getting immersed um in that kind of a format it, it, it you just you retain the information it, it it sinks in in a different way that experience is hard to replicate it was worth that price if it, if it's a good satisfying uh read obviously well, the, the, the return of print and that experience of having something physical i think has been almost pronounced during covid right we've all got these zoom calls going on now etc a lot of us have these bookshelves behind us it's almost been like a way to a mantle in our personalities and interests. So I know it's been a big conversation starter in, in talks like these, right? Where I get to kind of say, hey, look, you, oh, you read that too? Like, what did you think of it, right? The, those kind of conversations have spurred naturally and it's been a, I mean, an unintended uh, tailwind yeah. for, for book publishing. Oh, for sure. And you mentioned the Barnes and Noble. I read an article, I can't remember if it was uh, Bloomberg Business or something on their resurgence. They're opening more stores and they're closing again and they see a path to growth. And a lot of that was driven by Instead of you having some kind of centralized merchandiser who's pushing margin, they put yeah. book lovers back in the stores. And they said, hey, this is your store. Hire some people who love books. You pick the books. You lay them out. And just creating this cult, which I think they took a page out of golf, right? You're, you're creating this culture of, yeah. of passion, of giving. I want to go to the golf course or go to you know, PGA Tour Superstore. Or I want to go to a nice men's store because there are other people there who share my interests and it's really working for them. And that's that's a great story we can all learn from. Yeah, I'd be curious what you guys think because I, uh, you know, with all the technology debate right now and, and you know, just, I, I know you're a fan of Sid Mashburn, um, Roberto, and I, I am too. We have a store here in LA. And yeah, um, I do, you know, one of the things that's fascinated me in this golf technology debate is like the pga of america really wants to be pro manufacturer and all this stuff and and just in this context of that more personal experience where even maybe you pay a little bit more but you meet some like-minded people and they get you and they recommend you something and there's there's just something really special about that and i look at sort of the demise of the the golf shop at the course in my lifetime. And then I see like the PGA of America wants to be sort of pro manufacturer. And you're like, well, they've, these companies have kind of undermined the golf pro. The golf pro is not the most important person at the facility anymore. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And just golf course maintenance being more important or uh, the manager being that person who, who kind of handles a lot of different things, but it's a very, I'm, I'll, I have people tell me all the time, oh, the golf shop will never come back. That will never happen. And I'm like, gosh, you know, I see it going in other, other sectors. Uh, I, I refuse to believe that because I think golfers with fitting and they, they want a certain experience. And, and I think it's where the, the modern needs to be become that, that better fitter and that person who can sell the stuff to people. And, um, because the golf shop is a place where for a lot of, if you're young, if you start the game young, uh, that connection with the assistant pros and playing a late nine with them or whatever, uh, for a lot of us, that was a way you, you got into the game that kind of replaced the, 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 or you got, you fell in love with the game and you met maybe somebody a little older and who, who made you laugh and taught you some things. And um, so I'm really curious to see what happens. I, I, I refuse to give up on that idea that, that, because golf's always about five years behind every trend of society. So I, I, I can't rule. I would love to see the PGA of America's 
stop uh, kowtowing to these companies and go, you know, let's get the golf pro back and get the golf shop mattering again. And, and yeah, yeah. And I don't, it's not that I want to see the big, big stores go out of business. They're great. I mean, I went in Roger Dunn here the other day and I love what they do too, but I would love to see the golf shop become a more important place again at the golf facility. And I, I think it can happen like it's happening with uh, bookshops and, and clothing shops and things like that. Well, I want to hear Dan's take on this because he specializes in retail and his day job. But in my opinion, I think you go where the customer goes. I'm not sure that the PGA of America or is, is really steering the ship as much. And, you know, again, it's high, low customers. They want to go like, if you need deodorant and detergent, I want to go to target. It has it all there. I yeah. can get it all, get in, get out or, or Amazon. Right. And, and that's the same thing. The big box retailer provides from an equipment standpoint, the demise of the golf shop, maybe on a hard goods has gone with the increase and explosion in soft goods. Apparel is booming at golf shops. Yeah. And I think it's because, Hey, again, I'm going to go high, just like I go to Sid Mashburn. I'm going to go to my pro shop where I can get things that only, you know, are logoed here. And it's really curated for my lifestyle, which is kind of this casual country club mm -hmm. life or golf life that, so, um, I mean, that's kind of my take, but Dan, Dan, what do you think? In retail for the longest time, you had this very strict trade-off between, uh, cost from economies of scale like big box stores and like the service that's something much more niche or traditional or even big like a Nordstrom's would provide like that is less of a trade-off I see nowadays there's so much to change with technology and expectations from consumers that that has been less of a fork in the road so to speak when I apply that to golf stores I think of the you know the growth in the game right with COVID etc the passion that the golf store brings people together with and wearing a logo as a, as an emblem of unity. I, I think I've seen that that plays out in a very unique way in a, in a golf shop in a way that it has, I think I'm with you, Jeff, in terms of like, Hey, I don't think it's the demise, right? I think it's a, it is a path for, for, for growth and to thrive, but you're right. It's going to take a, a different mindset from the professionals in the industry to make, to really capitalize on that. So, I think I've, I think I'm, uh, I'm going to workshop a, a title for your 12th book here, Jeff. <laughs> it's going to be an homage to the golf pro. Yeah. The pro. It might be, I, might, I think, uh, I think there's something there and some, uh, some memoirs along the way. Well, just quickly. I mean, it, it all started at old Tom Morris's shop. Uh, and, and I've ran it a little bit about it because the uh, links trust did a beautiful job restoring his shop, but, but uh, then they've turned it over to the Open Championship merchandise, which is just it's just dreadful, uh, soulless stuff. And they covered up the sign, Old Tom Morris. But that shop, I mean, CB McDonald went there as a young guy, and and he was treated well. He got a locker. They had a little locker area, and he was forever loyal to Old Tom Morris. Of course, then he became the father of American golf. Bobby Jones hid there uh, from the crowd when it got crazy after he won the open Tillinghast went there. Uh, I mean, everybody kind of visited and it, and it was this welcoming place that now granted they were making the clubs there. And that may be the difference, uh, to your point, Roberto, about the, you know, the soft goods and, and the logo and everything that's, that's where they've shifted to it. That may just be it. And they were making clubs in and they were craftsmen and there had to be just a cool, atmosphere and even in my lifetime the golf shop staff still was the one that did your re-grip and and things like that or sent it out and and got it done um so that that's a change where it's it's a it's a different craft the the, the golf pro but uh, i mean from the beginning of the game that little communal spot has been important to <clears throat> growing the game no it's hugely important i mean i have so many memories I've, I've probably spent a year of my life in a pro shop when it would rain you'd be there till eight o'clock right. at night waiting for your mom or dad to come pick you up checking out new putters i've hit a thousand million putts in a pro shop with assistant yeah. pros and it's always kind of young guys <laughs> or girl and it's just yeah. it really is a unique um way to have people fall in love with the game and the culture around it so that's cool another thing Speaking of media, uh, you know, times changing, we touched on it at the beginning, golf media undergone tremendous change. You had kind of the big, the big outlets, the couple big magazines that is now, you know, through various steps and twists and turns, uh, brings us to 2023. How do you see that shift going next? I mean, how have you experienced it? Do you think it's been good for golf? Do you think it's been good for uh, you know, who's it been good for? Who's it been bad for? Just love to talk about golf media landscape. 
Yeah, it's a it's a mess. Um, you know, there was the famous quote of George Plimpton saying, you know, the smaller the ball, the better the writing in the sport. And uh, and, and and there's still fantastic golf writing going on and, and still important storytelling that ends up being the thing that the announcers mentioned on the broadcast or becomes the thing that people sitting around the 19th hole are talking about. But it it's not the same. And it's it's definitely, I think, uh not great for the sport and 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 the demise is really unfortunate in a lot of ways because so much of it was is driven by and i i was unfortunately had to witness a lot of this on the inside but so much of it's driven by this uh, the advertising industry's obsession with uh getting millennials even though a lot of millennials will never would never subscribe to a magazine and this was 10 years ago and they're still you know obsessing about this and They'll have a 28-year-old ad executive that that doesn't know anything about golf, and they're trying to show them, look, we're getting younger and cooler, and it's not working. They're not selling ads, and uh, and yet you've had this rise of some some publications like McKellar and the Golfers Journal, and and and, and there's and over in the UK some just some nice, beautiful printed things, or the kind of uh, more sophisticated influencers using YouTube and beautiful imagery that way so that so that kind of the it's passing by the big publications and i don't think that's great for the sport i'd love those to be better but uh you know just people have different ways of of getting their information now and uh you know in terms of covering the professional game it's just yeah it's just a it's a different world that uh you you really have to be kind of a cheerleader and uh, there's sort of a whole performative thing with Twitter and it really doesn't lead to a whole lot of substance. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, there's still great people uh, doing great stuff on Twitter and they're funny and they make you laugh. But, um, but in terms of dealing with the organizations, particularly the tour, you really gotta be, um, a certain kind of uh, person and approach. And I certainly could care less about doing any of that. Um, it's just sort of a performative thing that's not particularly interesting. So I, you know, I mean, I look at, for instance, my interest in architecture, drone photography is one of the things that's making people uh, more interested in golf course design. So there's a place where progress, technology, whatever you want to call it, is making the audience smarter and more engaged in all those buzzwords that are just true. And um but I do think that, and we, and the players are different. They don't really like to sit down for interviews or understand that, you know, a good interview, it takes a while to get some stuff going and a conversation going. And then, you know, the really introspective revealing stuff comes out. They just don't have the, either the attention span for it, or they have their own social channels to put their message out. So those things really have changed kind of the, um the insight we have into the players and i think that's a, a bummer because those great profiles that you read are still the thing that really uh helps a player's image if that's what they're looking for or shares their story and um you know the and then the other thing i'd say the agents just are just brutal now there's just a few of them that are great but most of them just kind of have such a hostility to any kind of media so that makes a job just tougher whether you're an independent writer or you're a uh one of the big name publications they get very involved so there are all these different dynamics that uh that make it make it really tough just on the coverage side and then obviously the business side is yeah, it's just tough. And so, so much of the stuff you get now is sponsored content in, in the big publications. And you I mean, it's not labeled that, but it, it's yeah. sort of a pay for play thing and, and golf channels kind of the same way. And, um, that obviously I think is disappointing. And I think the golf audience is still really smart and sees through most of it. I think you calling out McKellar and golfers journal supports a you know kind of a theory i talked about it with andy on the friday that golf and professional golf are two different things and you've had no laying up build a great brand and media outlet really focused on professional golf and then you have mckeller and golfers journal that really have nothing to do with professional golf it has something to do with people's love of the game and they've had a ton of success so i think that that um is worth calling out and then second dan 
Jeff called out the obsession with a young demographic and advertisers reaching that demo. I see old people having money, not young people having money. What gives? Where is the value and where are advertisers spending their money? In the right place or the wrong place? You know, it, it's a constant debate in the industry. And it's not, it's always one that is, um, it's coming in there more scrutiny now because the short-term payoffs are in an all-time high versus the ability to invest long-term. So we're seeing more of this retreat to where can I make my next dollar today? But I think the smarter companies have tried to play both in a way that it's, it's hard, right? You, you can't be the same thing to everyone, but the, the industry has always struggled with this in, in general. Um, what I see interesting in the golfer's journal and McKellar as examples, like on one hand, you could argue those are the least millennial oriented thing ever, right? Like they, that, that in, in, on, on the surface is not millennial oriented, but the millennial does have an interesting, um, taste for aesthetic in like bringing back some old school traditions. Right. So in a way it does kind of have that appeal. I mean, I, I, I happen to subscribe to the golfer's journal and this is not an ad for them, but like. You know, I have it on my coffee table and whenever someone younger than me comes out, they're very appealed, they're very attracted to it and they hate golf, right? Like, but they look at that and like, this is cool. This is beautiful. The way it feels is neat. So it, it somehow crosses over and I don't know what it is about it that, that, that does that, but that's a great example of a set of design decisions that didn't necessarily isolate the brand into being pigeonholed one side or the other demographically. Yeah, that is interesting. You also get the, I feel like, Golf Channel is on in an 80-year-old's office like 24-7, and it's not really cool for young people, but Golfer's Journal is. So, you know, up is down. It's interesting. Well, yeah, and I, I just, uh, on what the point that Dan's making there that I've struggled with um, forever with with the golf publications, uh, yeah, I just don't understand why you, why you can't do a little bit of both. And they've just had a very much, we just got to try this, and they're just trying too hard. You know, the, the content is just so desperate to act young and, and then it just doesn't really appeal to anybody and and i get they've, they've run out of you know part of it is you just have fewer pages to work with but the because to dan's point that that what i can't get is that i know a lot of millennials who are very sophisticated and the people they're catering to in the advertising industry seem to think they're morons and uh, need everything to be about cool, some sort of cool factor. And yeah, of course, there's some of that and a freshness and a, a youth. Yeah, sure. Uh, and there's older people who want to kind of know what that's all about. But it's the dumbing down that I don't I don't quite uh, get that just I thought it would have worn off by now. And now, you know, Gen Z's coming along and they've really got them confused, it seems like. So, um, but I am... The older I get, the more and seeing what's happened with vinyl, with print, um, there are, are certain things that are turning out to be timeless. And I love technology. I love all the digital stuff, but there's real value in these things that that have a little bit of substance and a little bit of class. And uh, I, I, I think those things, part of the reason they're doing well is that they tend to rely more on the, the sales of whatever they do and the subscription element, not the advertising element so we're in this weird middle right now we you know i remember growing up and seeing magazines and always looking forward to the dan jenkins articles or the rosa ford's jaime diaz and a bunch of others right now we've got some of that still going on latching on but not a ton, not as much you've got the influencers on social you mentioned you've got folks who are much more independent like yourselves like Fast forward 10 years, like how is this all going to shake out, you think? Is it going to tip one way or another, or are we going to keep exploring this messy middle where all this stuff sort of coexists? Yeah, I think the messy middle is here to stay. Um, and I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. I think the rise of, of a lot of these things uh, that you mentioned and, you know, what Andy and the fried egg are doing and, and no laying up is very aware that they need to uh, retain a, you know, an intelligence and a, an edge to what they do. Uh, but I think you're going to see, uh, I mean, I think you're going to see a fatigue at some point with sort of the obviously paid to promote kind of stuff. If there's not something there, people will lose interest in that. Uh, but I think it's just the way technology's um, sort of made a mess of certain things that you're just going to keep seeing this, this uh, little bit of 
stuff here. And, and I don't know if that's the end of the world. I, I think people can find voices they like and, and approaches they like, and, and that might be all right. Uh, but like you, I, I do, I guess what I, what I would ask you guys, what I, cause what I think is, uh, I think it's a problem for golf that it's still, you still want those, those, um, those, those, those big voices and the powerful, uh, enterprises that can do that occasional really uh, deep investigative story or great uh, oral history of a major and talk you know fly all over the world and talk to people you know we've lost a lot of that uh, other sports have not quite lost it like we have that that's some of the depth and some of the scrutiny let's be honest uh, of yeah i think the tour has really got a lot of problems because there's no great scrutiny of it other than you you know people taking little jabs on twitter and and but you know for instance nobody's done some some truly deep dives like they would have a few years ago on some of the things that have gone on with live um you know what's going on between them and the major the tour and the major championships so we've lost some of that and i think that's bad for the golf industry and the game not to have um uh, whatever the equivalent of, of certain publications still uh, watching things. Now there's probably people in other sports right now that would be saying it's the same thing in every other sport. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I may be naive there uh, that it's, that it's a golf specific thing. I'm not sure what the checks and balances are on the NFL. So I'd probably agree with the, agree yeah, with that. Yeah. But speaking yeah. of the messy middle ground um, in my opinion, at the top of that, of that heap is your newsletter called the quadrilateral. This is a, this is an advertisement for that newsletter. I'm a subscriber. <laughs> I believe it's $49 a year. I could not recommend it highly enough to people. Uh, it is billed around the four majors, men's and women's. You do include the women's majors. Uh, but in direct competition to us, I think it's the best business of golf read out there. You really have great takes on the business side of the golf anchored around the four majors. But you know, why did you anchor around those four? And then you know, what is how has it turned out as opposed to what you thought it would be? Yeah, I uh, wanted to, I just, I just love those events. And I felt like my, my strengths are in uh, knowing a little bit about the history of the game, having an interest in covering the business of the majors, the architecture, the stuff that goes on around the events to do a little bit more of just sort of the, the, the travel uh, spectator side of the experience of when you go. I mean, I still, when I'm there, I still cover some things that other people don't. Yeah, you know, I go to the merch tent or I go, I, I just notice things about the build out and what they're doing for the, and if something, it's something for the fan experience stinks, I call it out. And, and, you know, not many people are writing about that. Uh, so I enjoy, I just enjoy that. I and mean, they're just the, they're the biggest events. The numbers are there and the tour just got, is just so unenjoyable to, to deal with. I mean, shot links great. And there's some great people at the tour, but all in all, um, you know, plenty of people doing coverage of players and, uh, you know, I was going to do a little bit more too on, on sort of, uh, the prognostication side, but the gambling thing, the way golf is, has gone into the gambling side has been so bad and dumb. And I like to, you know, I like to bet. I love horse racing. I love, I love looking at player form going into the masters and I'll still do a little of that. Um, but they've really bungled the, the gambling side in a way that's just sort of sort of a turnoff almost. Uh, I've always had a mindset of, well, if I read something and find it interesting, I want to share it with you. And that gives people value um, instead of just writing a story. Um, and I always come from everything I do of, of saying, well, this made me, I think, smarter. I want to make my reader smarter. And uh, so I do a mix of things. You know, I do pure writing and do my stuff but i also do a lot of aggregation still and it's a pain in the ass but i enjoy it I know the people paying me if they enjoy it or i made them even if my blathering on about the sixth hole at la country club which is what i'm writing right now and um is boring i know that 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 you know that other edition i gave somebody a great article that they hadn't you know bill gates wrote about ai and i slipped slipped it in at the bottom and they read it and they're like oh wow this made me smarter and that i've made their subscription valuable and um i think that's where a lot of the, the golf media has really struggled is they've forgotten that people if they're paying you 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 you've gotta you gotta take care of them you gotta make them a little smarter in 
some way, um, that's what they're paying you for. So I love the format now and I highly recommend it to certain people. I don't know if it's for everybody um, because I had sort of the discipline of doing a blog where you, you've got to produce. Uh, but, you know, that's the beauty too of the format. There's people doing different things. There's people who are more on the visual audio side and there are people who do the peer writing and there's somewhere in between. Speaking of making people smarter, I've always said that my superpower in this podcast is my ignorance. <laughs> so I'm going to fully expose it and lean into it by asking both of you a question. So the majors are obviously the best events, best competition, best prestige. We all know all of that. That's not interesting. Or what is, what I want to ask you about is like, what's a non-obvious niche, cool thing about the majors from the business side? Maybe how they do a TV deal or how they treat fans or like, what's something that, that someone like me wouldn't know that makes this major just an extra bit cooler? You want to talk about extending the reach of your brand uh, beyond the gates of the facility, the taste of the masters to mail, to mail people, you know, a, a thing of pimento cheese and a couple bags of chips and some master's cups and coasters for 175 bucks. I, I, you're, you're paying people to market to them and, and make your brand special. That is going to make watching TV feel special. And to me, that is beyond brilliant from a, from a business standpoint. So that's the one that pops to my mind. I guess for me, it's just a general uh, principle that they're uh, really getting good at right now, um, which is to to somehow find that fine line between protecting our, our, our heritage and our history. And this is all the majors. Uh, some are better at than others. And some have had some big time uh, bad deviations that they're trying to repair. Um, but in general, there's this, that having that history, that lineage, um, years and years of kind of built up trust, but also how do we kind of expand on that and without selling ourselves? I think that's kind of the difference between the majors and the PGA tour or live is that they, they have to walk that fine line of, of, of uh, protection and also, I don't even want to say growth, but but just uh, ensuring what they do remains great. Uh, and I think we're really in a. Uh, I'm so grateful for this because it wouldn't be any fun to cover. But we're in a really special time where those organizations, after I think all of them have made mistakes, and they're uh, realizing that that's the thing that makes them great and lines up you know, proud partners or sponsors, whatever you want to call them. Uh, it makes people pay uh, prices you know, or pay 170. I mean, I would pay $175, by the way, just for the paper, just for the, uh, the, the cool paper that comes with the taste of the masters. The, uh, yeah, the, the logoed stuff is just great. But uh, uh, so it's a fascinating, I mean, for people who are in business that what they do, and they obviously take a lot from Wimbledon and other, other entities, but to non-golfers and just general sports fans, they have a cachet for a reason. And uh, those four weeks, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to do what I did because uh, they really stand out. And it's the thing you love about them. And then, you know, what we've seen the last 20 years is when you bring, and this is why the women's majors are going to get so big. It's not just some architectural snobbery thing. When you bring that venue that has something, and, and you set it up right, you don't screw it up, and the players perform on it, and you see what happens on that. I mean, it's just no different than going to a, a, a play at a bland theater versus one that's got a great ceiling and acoustics, and the whole thing comes together. And when it all comes together, uh, we know it's just the most beautiful sport on the planet. And when all those things, but it's hard to do, and that's what I like to point out, is I don't think people realize how hard it is you need the weather, you need all these TV to be on your side. And there's, yeah, you just need a lot, but when it does click, uh, and obviously the masters does that pretty much every year, which may, is why they're the masters. All right, Jeff, you've survived the tough questions. We are going to switch to a little bit of a lightning round. Dan leads okay. tap ins, and then I'll do a, a bit of buy or sell Dan, take it away. All right, Jeff, the premiums on speed. So your book is called golf course architecture for normal people. Did you did it ever cross your mind to name it Golf Course Architecture for Dummies? About 20 years ago, I actually wrote a book proposal 
<laughs> when the dummies books were a thing and they, they, they sold a lot of books lot of yeah but i think that's past right. we're trying to class it up a little with with normal people i love it <laughs> in general are you a fan of template holes or not um oh boy that's that's a hard to give it's a tough short answer uh, i'll say yes but i also have template hole fatigue because it's sort of like saying um it's it's it, it's like people sampling songs i still want i still want originals i still want people to dig deep and write original songs instead of uh, i mean i get it but i also would like to see the art move on and create the next great template hole i'm gonna sell a so what is hat your... or a t-shirt that has the word template hole fatigue on it i think we could sell a ton of those <laughs> but sorry i know this isn't my section <laughs> good business i'll buy it Good business ideas coming out right here in the rec in the course record show. Um, so what is your favorite hole? Favorite hole. Uh well, it's been it's a mess right now, but the tenth of Riviera still. I got to play it a lot as a as a young man. And I was with some people last night because there's a hole at LA. And 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 the gist of it is the genius of it is you want to play a way, you want to take the long route to have the the best chance at kind of continued low stress success and it's just so counterintuitive to most golf holes and so lacc this year in the u.s open has a, a par three or par four just like well par three it plays like a par three for the pros but uh a par four just like it so i love a counterintuitive uh long route kind of hole that that drives people nuts because they go well, why would i take the long way when i can take the short way and that that's why i love that hole even though it's a little bit of a mess right now with the way the game's played but what's a course you could play every day until the day you die uh well north barrack scotland which is on the cover of my book um i think is if i had the you know and i differentiate in the book there's 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 that question could you play a course every day and enjoy it versus you know is there that one and you know that for a lot of people now is the one because it's just so fun now the architect in you What's the course you're dying to get your hands on to do a renovation or restoration? Well, Riviera should be a top 10 in the world course. They've kind of made a mess of it. So I would probably uh, say that, but I'd, I'd also say Pine Valley needs, needs a lot of work, which I'm sure will, you know, would offend a lot of people hearing that. But so this is ranked number one and everybody goes there and has a great time, but it needs a lot of work. <laughs> if you look at the old photos, you, well, but, all... you know what? But you know what? Before those two, forget a bunch of rich guy places. We 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 still have some great public courses uh, that that need work. Uh, so I'd love to see Sharp Park up in Northern California. It can't be put back perfectly, but it, it a lot of it could be put back. And to have an Alistair McKenzie public course shine again, that's way more important for the game than Pine Valley's perfect. Leave it alone. <laughs> you mentioned you played college golf you played at pepperdine now one of the powerhouses in the game yeah so in, uh, since in i what, left yes well in what ways can the ascent of the pepperdine program be attributed to you can when you? i graduated uh some of my scholarship money went to help jason gore's full scholarship when he transferred and then they went and won a national title with jason gore and some other guys who i did play with i did help recruit michael walton uh who was on that championship team. And uh, that would be the extent of my contribution. And uh, you talk about an unbelievable success story, what they're doing uh, with the facilities they have compared to what other programs are doing, the size of the school, the cost of the school. I am, uh, I'm every time I see their scores and see what they're doing, I just, I just, it's just, I'm blown away. It's uh Coach Beard's just done an unbelievable job. Jeff, you made all your tap-ins successfully, center cut. Okay. So now over to Roberto for buy or sell. All right, two quick comments before we start buy or sell. Uh, great band name, Template Hole Fatigue. Come on, right? It's an amazing band name. And second, yeah. Pasta Tiempo. I know they're renovating it now, but that's the all-time greatest public course that I've ever seen. So I can't wait to see once they're done with it. All right, buy or sell, Tesla stock. Sell buy or sell joggers on the golf course buy wow buy or sell bitcoin <laughs> uh at the moment buy but uh, yeah okay buy or sell golf course rankings oh sell 
Hard sell. Fire sell audiobooks. Buy, definitely. Especially if it's read by the author. Nice. Fire sell artificial intelligence disrupting golf course architecture. Uh, definitely sell. Not going to happen. Okay. Jeff, we can't thank you enough for being on the show. <laughs> covered a lot of ground. We really covered a lot of ground. We, we, you know, we try to anchor around business, but I love where this conversation went. Uh, really, really appreciate your time. The book is called Golf Architecture for Normal People. When can people get it and where do they get it? Uh, Amazon's the best spot. It is uh, hot off the press. I'm very happy to say it uh, came out nice. It's little, it's a uh, quick read, and uh, but it also can be ordered at any bookshop in, in the world, including bookshop.org. So uh, check it out. I think it'll be out before June 1 because uh, the supply chains are humming again in the United States. Nice. I've read it, um, digital version, early before the press. Really enjoyed it. I think uh, anyone who listens to this show will uh, will eat it up. So look forward to getting my, my hard copy. And then I've already mentioned it, but the quadrilateral is Jeff's newsletter. It is excellent. Highly recommend. Dan, anything from you? Jeff, can't thank you enough. Appreciate it. Best of luck with the book. And thanks for uh, giving us a chance to take a peek at it. Really enjoyed it. All right. Well, thanks for letting me uh, to talk to you guys about all this fun stuff. I really enjoyed it. 